Frank Freshwaters was in the news recently. He was on the run from the police, not for a year or two, but for 56 years. He committed a crime in Ohio, and even though the police were after him, they just couldn't catch up to him. He, uses, he used various aliases and various addresses, but eventually they tracked him down to Florida, and they tricked him in signing some papers, and when he did, they were able to get his fingerprint and compare it with the prints that they had on file, and he was nabbed, and he was arrested. Even after 56 years of running from the law, he was still perceived as guilty. Now, most of us would not be able to identify with fresh waters. We would not, in any stretch of the imagination, consider ourselves to be lawbreakers. Some of us don't even jaywalk. Nobody could even accuse us of that. And while most would take pleasure in the reality that they are model citizens, pay their taxes and fulfill all their civic responsibilities, blameless in the eyes of our judicial system, it seems, on the other hand, that few consider that where it concerns the law of God and God's heavenly court, we are not as innocent as we may appear. In fact, the court of God, the court of heaven, condemns and judges all men who are outside of Christ as guilty. Whether it be 10 years that we have been living, or 56 years, or 76 years, outside of Christ, the law of God states that we are guilty. This is precisely where the good news of the gospel is so important. For the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us and tells us how a man or woman, guilty before God because of the sins that we have committed before him, how that individual might be considered righteous in the sight of God. This is at the very heart of the gospel, that it is possible for one who is guilty, having broken God's law, to be considered by God righteous as though he had never sinned. This gospel, which promises righteousness, is the gospel that Paul defended in Galatia. For there were those who had come and were perverting this good news and were teaching the Galatians that if they were to be accepted as righteous before God, they needed not only to depend on Jesus, but they had to also perform the works of the Lord. They had to do good works. And Paul is vehemently opposed to this in the first chapter. He will go on in chapter 1 as he defends the gospel to teach that the gospel that he proclaimed was not something that he learned or received secondhand, but that this gospel was that which was revealed to him by God, was given to him by revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He makes it very clear in chapter 1 that he did not receive this gospel of good news about how we may be right in the sight of God from the Jerusalem apostles because he tells us that it was only three years after he had been converted that he went up to Jerusalem, that he had minimal contact with the, with the apostles in Jerusalem. In fact, he only spoke to Peter and James, and then he went off 
to proclaim the gospel. In chapter 2, he's still speaking about this gospel that he has received, how he has received it independently of the Jerusalem apostles. He tells us in chapter 2 that it is only then, after 14 years, that he made a second trip to Jerusalem. And when he went to Jerusalem, he presented the gospel that he preached to the Gentiles. This gospel, which states that a man is accounted as just in the sight of God without the law, this gospel, and I want to not emphasize this, this gospel, this law-free gospel, Paul says that in, in effect that the Jerusalem apostles accepted it. And one of the ways they did that was that they did not, they did not force or compel Titus, who was a Gentile who was with him, to undergo circumcision. And so they accepted in the gospel that one is saved apart from keeping the Old Testament commandments, including circumcision. Paul will continue to say that they, that they in fact, gave him this acceptance, and they endorsed his proclaiming of the gospel to Gentiles while they committed themselves to preaching to Jews. They only required that he was to take care of the poor, something that he was also very eager to do. He will tell us then in verses 11 to 14 of an encounter that he had with Peter because he's still reinforcing that the gospel he proclaims is a legitimate gospel. Now in verses 11 to 14, he's going to say that his gospel is legitimate and it has authority even over the apostles in Jerusalem. And he's going to cite now an example of a division, an encounter between himself and Peter, the Apostle Peter. Paul was in Antioch. Peter arrived in Antioch. And when Peter came from Jerusalem to Antioch, he began to eat with Gentiles. As a Jew, that was not permitted. The Gentiles did not, did not abide by kosher rules. But Peter, having come to Antioch, was eating with the Gentiles because he recognized that they were saved by God apart from doing the Old Testament commandments. However, Peter says that, or Paul says that there came Jews from Jerusalem, came from James. It is uncertain whether, whether James actually sent them. I think that, that, that in this instance, they claim to have been sent by James and more broadly by the Jerusalem church. When they arrived in Antioch, Peter, along with Barnabas and other Jews, withdrew from eating with the Gentiles. Paul perceived the import of this one action. And in fact, he will call Peter up on the charge of hypocrisy. For Peter, by withdrawing from table fellowship with the Gentiles now begins to suggest that they are unclean and perhaps even far greater that they were not genuine Christians because they did not keep the law, the law that the Jews who had come from Jerusalem would have kept. So Paul rebukes Peter and he rebukes him for hypocrisy because Peter did not deep down really believe that these Gentiles were unsaved. The only reason, and verse 12 tells you that, the only reason that he withdrew from eating with them was because he was afraid. He, it was because of cowardice. And so he, Peter, Peter was never actually a believer in the fact that these Gentiles were unsaved. Paul says that 
Peter lived as a Gentile because he ate with them. But now by denying table fellowship to Gentiles, he was compelling them to live as Jews. He was suggesting that they must now keep all the Old Testament rituals and commands in order to be accepted by God. Verses 15 and 16 lies at the heart at the at the heart of this this paragraph because you're going to have from Peter or from Paul a summary of the gospel he tells Peter in verse 15 we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles so we are Jews we keep the law we have the privileges but then he goes on he says in verse 16 knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Here is a summary statement of the gospel, the gospel that Paul preached. And he's saying to Peter, I want you to know that even though we are Jews and we have been given the Old Testament and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the Old Commandments, even though we have these, we know, we know that no man is justified by works of the law. This is the gospel he preached, that it is possible for one to be accepted in the sight of God apart from doing any good works. Paul says, we know this. This is what the gospel teaches, that a man can be justified without the law. Now, we need to understand that, 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 that the gospel then is a gospel that proclaims the good news of justification. And I want us to look at verses 16 initially and then verse 21 in the passage to talk about this subject of justification. Justification. I want to speak again, beginning at verse 16, first of all, about the nature of justification. The nature of justification. And I want to suggest first that justification refers to God's gracious and irreversible, irrevocable, legal verdict of righteousness. It is God's gracious and irrevocable legal verdict that a sinner is considered righteous in his sight. For us to flesh this out, we need to begin by focusing first on the verb, justify, that we find in verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. The verb is dikaio. It occurs in verse 16 three times. In total, it appears in the work of Galatians, in the letter to Galatians, it occurs eight times. It occurs three times, as I mentioned here in verse 16. It occurs later in, in chapter 2, verse 17, where Paul says, but while if we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. It occurs later on in our text. It occurs in chapter 3, verse 8. 
where Paul says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. If you go down to verse 11, he says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And verse 24, again the verb appears. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And the final reference there where the verb occurs is in chapter 5 and verse 4. Paul says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Now, it is not only then the verb, dikaio, justify, which teaches the doctrine of justification, but also the noun, dikaiosune, which occurs in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 21. It occurs in chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 21, and chapter 5, verse 5. What does it mean to be justified? What does it mean? Uh, I am reminded of the story of a woman who went to her husband and asked him a simple question. Why does the stock market go up and down? And he thought to give her a brilliant answer. He said that fluctuations in the market result from inflationary pressures, government policies, and global vagaries, global vagaries. Well, his wife took that answer, she went away, she thought about it, and she came back to him and said, if you don't know the answer, just say so. <laughs> I know that it is possible to take simple questions and complicate them. And even, in the, even with the danger of doing so right and present before me, we need to understand what Paul means when he talks about justification. In fact, in Galatians, it occurs more than in any other epistle, apart from the book of Romans. And this is the first mention of this doctrine in Pauline writing, because we believe that Galatians was written before Romans. What does it mean? Well, let me tell you what it does not mean. And, 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 and there needs to be some clarification because you have, first of all, the views of the new perspective. You have had in relatively recent times a, a, a gathering of Catholics and Lutherans who have sought to, to redefine and come to an agreement on justification. For instance, there's an agreement on justification which says that justification is, is God accepting a sinner despite his or her sinfulness, and making that person righteous by freeing them from the power of sin and death. But we would say that that definition is wrong. Because justification, at, at least by this definition, includes making a person righteous, freeing them from sin and death. That's the language of sanctification. They're, they're adding a moral component to justification where it does not include a moral component. So what is it? In each case where the verb dikaio is used by Paul and dikaiosune in the context where it depends upon dikaio, 
Paul is using legal language. It is a language of a courtroom. It is referring to a person's legal status before the law. And in the eyes of God's law, a person is either justified, that is, the law of God declares a person to be free from guilt, not guilty, or the law condemns the person and declares them guilty. To be justified then in the sight of God, it is to be declared righteous or innocent with regard to the law of God. It's a legal declaration that God makes. It does not include a moral component. How do you know that dikaio, as it is used by the Apostle Paul, refers to a person's legal status? When you trace the usage of the word, even in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, dikaio is used always in the context of a legal verdict, a pronouncement of righteous. Take, for example, in Exodus 23, verse 7, where the Lord instructs Moses regarding the administration of justice in Israel. He says to him, Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. What does it mean, I will not justify the wicked? God means he will not acquit. He will not set him free. He will not declare him to be righteous. Again, we see in Deuteronomy 25, and I'm just selecting at random some of the usage of Dikayo. Moses commanded the judges in Israel. He says that they are to justify the righteous and they are to condemn the wicked. The contrast is between justifying and condemnation. This is a legal language. Judges must indeed stand up for the right of the righteous and they must pronounce judgment upon the wicked. The Apostle Paul if you read Romans chapter 8, for example, and verse 33, you will see that the Apostle Paul depends upon the prophecy of Jeremiah and quotes him frequently. Isaiah the prophet also uses the verb dikaio in a legal sense. Take, for instance, in chapter 5 of Isaiah, where uh, the prophet says, Woe to men valiant for mixing to- intoxicating drinks, who justify the wicked for a bribe. And take justice from the righteous man. One of the, one of the problems that God had with Israel in the time of the prophet Isaiah was that there was a perversion of the legal system. The rich who had the power and the money and the influence could subvert justice. They could bribe judges so that the judges would justify, would make a legal verdict in favor of the wicked. Whereas the, the, the righteous, the person who was in the right, did not receive justice. Again, in Isaiah 50, verses 8 and 9, one of those texts that is rich in meaning and significance upon which Paul draws, we read, He is near who justifies me, who will contend with me. Let, him, let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? But you see, this is a servant of the Lord who is saying, we stand before God in a court of law. And the Lord who justifies me, who declares me righteous, is near me. And if he is near me, none can condemn me. 
Now, in all of these instances and many more that I have not the time to reflect upon this morning, Dikaio refers to the declaration that God pronounces over a sinner when God proclaims him and pronounces him to be righteous with regards to his law. And so when we talk about justification, when we use the word justify as we find it here in Galatians chapter 2 verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ that we might be justified by faith. This language is referring to God's legal verdict that whereas his law is concerned, we are not condemned, we are righteous. We say then that justification is a legal verdict. It is a finished, full verdict. But it is also God's gracious act. Something of this is intimated in verse 16 in the use of the verb in the passive voice. Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law. Is not justified is in the passive. Who justifies? Well, certainly, if we go to the courts and we proclaim ourselves to be innocent, the court will not take it that we can justify ourselves. No, we are not justified in the, in the law court unless a verdict has been stated in our favor that says that we are innocent, we are free to go. Clearly, when Paul uses then the verb in the passive voice, knowing that a man is not justified, this is what we call a divine passive because it is God himself who justifies. And in the passage we read earlier in chapter 3 verse 8 where Paul is, is, is telling the Galatians not to go back to the law because they were justified by faith, they, re, they received the spirit by faith. He, he points out that even in the Old Testament God had spoken to Abraham saying that he would justify Gentiles by faith. But you notice that in chapter 3 verse 8, it is God who justifies. It, this fact that God is the one who justifies, who declares one righteous, is explicitly stated in Romans chapter 8 verse 33. Paul says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It doesn't matter whether we think ourselves to be righteous or free from condemnation. What really matters is what God pronounces. It is God alone who is able to justify us with regards to his law. And so it is not only a legal verdict, justification refers to the gracious act of God by which he declares one righteous. It is gracious. It is by grace. God must declare us righteous because we cannot exonerate ourselves under the law of God. It must be by grace so that it might exclude, Paul says, all human boasting. But there is something else to be said about this, this matter of justification. And it, it is huge. Found again in verse 16. If we define justification then as God's gracious verdict, whereby he declares one to be righteous, it is also God's irrevocable verdict. That is, the, the, the pronouncement that God makes that we are righteous in his sight is, it is impossible to change. You know that because Paul does something unusual in the language of justification. He uses the verb three times, as I mentioned when we began, 
But in each case, when he uses the verb to justify, he uses it with three different tenses. First of all, he uses the present tense in verse 16. He says, knowing that a man is not justified there, he uses the present tense. And it, it points to the reality that in this life, we, right here and now, receive justification as God's legal verdict, as God's gracious gift. That we can, in this world, be justified forever in the sight of God. But he also uses the past tense. For, again in verse 16, he says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith. There, he uses the past tense. And this is often how he refers to justification in his other epistles. Paul refers to justification then as an act of God, a pronouncement of God that occurred at the time that we believed. So that when we were converted, when we were saved, when we came to know Christ, even at that very time, God made a legal pronouncement in heaven that where his law is concerned, we are not condemned. It is in the past. But surprisingly, Paul speaks again of justification, not merely in the present or in the past, but in the future. And so you will notice in, the, in part C of verse 16, he says, For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And I think you can see here, at least more clearly in your English translation, the future tense of the verb, justify. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. There is then, Paul tells us, a present, a past, and a future aspect of justification. It doesn't mean, however, that justification is progressive. That is, it does not mean that you can be a little bit more justified tomorrow than you are today. When God declares you righteous where the law is concerned, that's a final verdict. Just like the Supreme Court of Canada, when it makes a verdict, it is a final verdict. So is the court of heaven. What Paul does, however, is that he reminds us that all the blessings that we have in this life are still awaiting the future coming of Christ. If you receive eternal life here, you still wait until Christ's coming for, for that eternal life to be ratified. What Paul signals then is that there will be a future justification when God declares or pronounces us righteous. And perhaps it's better to talk of that future justification as vindication. That on the day of judgment, we are going to be vindicated. We are going to be shown as justified. What is marvelous about this news is, however, that we do not have to wait until the judgment to know the verdict. Because the verdict which God will pronounce in the future has been brought now into the present. We are justified here and now. You know, when we were in school, some of us were in school, we would take our exams, yearly exams, we would be desperate to know whether we passed or failed. And sometimes you may pass your professor in the corridor and you look at him to see, does he give anything away? Did I, did I make it? Did I not make it? And the fellow will have a straight face. You don't even know whether you've failed or passed. And you don't have to wait weeks, perhaps a few months later on, until all the grades are posted on the billboard and then you could go and check and see whether you passed. 
Where we are concerned, what Paul is indicating is that we do not have to wait to the consummation. We do not have to wait until Christ comes. The verdict that he will pronounce in the future, he now pronounces in the present. We know the answer. We have had, in a sense, our day in court. We know that there will not be any change between now and in the future. But why then a future justification? It is precisely because when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are involved in a personal act. You receive a personal vindication from heaven, a personal verdict on your account. But on the day of judgment, that justification, that declaration that you are righteous before God will be made public for the entire world to see that you are righteous in the sight of God. That's the future element of justification. It will not be a private declaration, but you will stand among the righteous as those whom God has pronounced guiltless and righteous in his sight. So justification refers then to God's gracious and irrevocable verdict that we are righteous in his sight. I want to move in to talk about the means of justification, which I think is at the very heart of verse 16. Paul will tell us that justification, this legal verdict from God, is not by doing the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. How does one receive this status? Paul is at pains to tell us, first of all, negatively how we do not receive it, and then positively how we receive it. First of all, negatively, he says that this status of being declared righteous comes independently from doing any works of the law. Three times in verse 16, he impresses this idea upon the Galatians. He tells them, not by works of the law. Take a look at verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. He goes on to say, even we have believed in Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Three times he says the same thing. Well, why? Why? Well, Paul knows as a good teacher that telling somebody something once really doesn't stick. So he tells him once, twice, thrice for emphasis. Because it is precisely at this point that the Galatians were going awry. They were attempting to do good works. And so Paul says the means by which we receive this verdict from God is not by doing the works of the law like keeping the Sabbath or circumcision or engage in various washings or whatever requirements the Old Testament placed upon Israel. It is not by doing any of these that they could ever be justified in the sight of God. Paul is therefore making it clear that if they returned to the law and if they started trying to keep the law to be acceptable by God, they are engaged in work that is a non-starter in the eyes of God. In fact, in the last clause of verse 16, Paul is actually referring to Psalm 142, where the psalmist says that no flesh will be justified in God's sight. And so when you ask the Apostle Paul, how does a sinner receive this legal verdict before God, Paul says, let me tell you, it is not by any good work that he can do. Because we are, as human beings, filthy and sinful. 
than, than Paul, how does a person receive righteousness? Paul says that this status of being just or righteous in the sight of God comes by faith in Christ. Look at it again. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, right here we have a problem, at least some difficulty in the text. Because literally, it says that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And there it is the faith of Jesus Christ. Some have translated this, the faith of Christ, to mean the faithfulness of Christ. And so when you read it back, it will go something like this. We are not justified by works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Christ. It is a possible interpretation, but I think contextually, it does not have support. And the English translation that we are justified by faith in Christ is the proper translation. For this verse is not talking or discussing Christ's faithfulness. That is a given. What he is discussing here is how does a person receive God's pronouncement of being righteous. Either one tries to earn it by keeping the law or one receives it by faith. In fact, Paul goes on to explain what he means that one is justified by the faith of Christ, that is faith in Jesus Christ. In the second clause it says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith. He's simply explaining, elaborating, emphasizing what he has just said by using the phrase, the faith of Christ. What Paul then is suggest, well not suggesting, but declaring plainly is that we are justified not by doing good works, but we are justified by faith in Christ. He says that believers have come to know the Lord by the hearing of faith. The hearing which is characterized by faith in chapter 3 verse 2. In Galatians 3.11, no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for the just shall live by faith. Now, this faith that Paul talks about involves an intellectual component. Faith, true biblical faith, involves understanding and knowledge. Abraham's faith included knowledge. He believed in the word of God. And when, when one believes in Christ, there must be a believing of a content, that Jesus Christ is a son of God, that he is savior. God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed the promise. It had an intellectual component. You must believe in Jesus Christ. But faith is merely more than receiving, it's more than receiving information and accepting that information about Christ. Genuine faith is believing in Christ, and that is what you find here in our passage. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ. Here it is speaking of a wholehearted trust upon Christ. We are not saved, we are not justified because of faith, but we are justified through faith. It is the object of faith. It is the person upon whom we rely. It is the one upon whom we depend for salvation who truly justifies us. 
And so we are justified, even we have believed in Christ, that we might be justified by faith. It is the object of faith, Christ, who justifies. You see, faith is not a work that we can perform. It is a gift of God by the Spirit. Faith is only the instrument, the empty hand which receives God's gracious gift of righteousness. But there's one more thing that I think needs to be said about justification. Apart from the fact that it is God's gracious, irrevocable, legal verdict that we are righteous in his sight. And secondly, that the means by which we receive this righteousness is by faith. We see something of the basis of justification. The basis of justification. This occurs in verse 21. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. What Paul is doing in verses 17 to 21 is to defend the charge that the doctrine of justification by faith somehow makes Christ the author of sin. Somehow makes Christ the one to be blamed for our sins. Because even though we are justified, we still sin. And Paul rejects this in the strongest language. He goes on to show that, that one cannot live in sin because when one is justified, one also simultaneously comes into union with Christ. One is joined to Christ, one dies with Christ, and one has Christ living in them. And then he says, he does not indeed set aside the grace of God. Why? For if, if righteousness or justification comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. You have to see the implication there. So let's look at it again. If righteousness comes by keeping the law, Paul says that Christ died in vain. So what does it, so why did Christ die then? He died to provide righteousness. If one accepts that righteousness comes by keeping the law, then Christ would have died in vain. But Christ did not die in vain. Christ died in order to accomplish righteousness, justification. You see, all of this discussion on justification should have brought some tension. You should have been wrestling because there's, there's a glaring area that has not been covered. How is it that in the Old Testament, God can say, I will by no means acquit or justify the guilty, and then in the New Testament you are hearing that a sinner is acquitted, justified before God without doing any good works. If, if somebody were in the courts in Toronto who you and I and we all knew was guilty and the fellow even himself confessed that he's guilty, I mean, you didn't have to try to trick him into saying he was guilty. No lawyers had to try to trick him. He said he's guilty and then he goes before the jury and goes before the judge and they say to him, no, you're free to go. Go home. You're not guilty. We, we would be incensed. We, we, we would be angry because this is a a perversion of justice. But here you see, at least potentially, you see God saying to the guilty, you are free to go. When, where then is justice? How can God be just in acquitting the guilty? And here Paul tells you the basis upon which we are declared righteous. It is because of Jesus Christ. It is because of the cross. There is this cause and effect between the atonement, the death of Christ, and our justification. 
God did not merely let us go scot-free. Somebody was punished. Somebody bore the price of our sins. It was Christ. If righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. But Christ did not die in vain. He died to secure our righteousness. He took our sin. He became a sinner in our place that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is because Jesus bore our sufferings and paid the ultimate price that God can give us an alien righteousness. A righteousness that we did not earn or produce but comes from the righteous Christ. The basis of our righteousness is Jesus Christ and him alone. My time is almost gone but let me say this. Silas House wrote an article in the New York Times and he laments what he sees as a growing generational divide. He says there's a divide in North America between young people and older people. He says the teenagers know more about the ins and outs of the Kardashians. There's some people call that somewhere. Young people know more about the ins and outs of the lives of the Kardashians than they know about their own relatives and older relatives. And he says that this is problematic because because we do not know about our older relatives, what we lose are histories. Histories of their joys and sorrows, of their successes and of their failures. And because we have not learned the histories of our older relatives, we are not able to emulate them, nor are we able to avoid the mistakes that they made. A generational divide. I wish that were the only divide or the most important divide. But there is a greater divide in society, a divide not between generations, but a divide, a spiritual divide between us and God. We need to know that whether or not we understand that we, outside of Christ, are under judgment. We are condemned before God. If we have broken any of the Ten Commandments, we are guilty of all, breaking them all. You need to be considered to be righteous before God. And the good news is that verdict that God will pronounce on the day of judgment can be pronounced over your life today. There is therefore now no condemnation, even now, to those who are in Christ. You can have your day in court this morning. You can have an acquittal. You can have a not guilty verdict. It is there for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, has made it possible... It is not that there is insufficient evidence to convict us. For God knows everything in our thinking, in our willing, in our feeling, in our acting. We have a mountain of sin. So God has enough evidence to send us to hell forever. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has taken our sins upon himself. And you can today be completely righteous in God's sight. 
I know I quote often from the Heidelberg Catechism, but there is no other piece of literature that I think explains this matter of righteousness before God better. It says, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, and even though I am still inclined towards evil, nevertheless, without deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits me with the perfect satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Christ, as if we had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift from God with a believing heart. That's justification. And I I know that my time is gone, but may I just point out that there is nothing else in this universe that comes remotely close to the gospel. That even though we are sinners and we know it, we can have this legal verdict where God says, now for you there is no more condemnation. It is the most glorious news. It is that which pumps life into dead hearts. It is that which gives us a pep in our steps and allows us to live in joy, to know that we are guiltless before God because of the guilty one, Christ, who took our sins. If you are to receive this good news, this gift, you must renounce your righteousness. Albert Camus was a French cynic and atheist, so he had no love for Christians, no love for Christ. But he wrote a book called The The Fall, in which he talks about a Parisian lawyer who was a good man. This is a fellow who took the case of people, or cases of people who couldn't fend for themselves, who had no money. He, he, He represented the poor and widows. This was the kind of man who was so good he would be helping old women cross the street. And one night he was crossing a bridge, and there was a woman in black standing at the side of the bridge looking down at the water. He went on a few steps, and then he heard something hit the water below, and he heard screams. But he kept on walking. He didn't look back, he didn't go back, because he didn't want to become involved. He didn't want to get into the water to rescue because he may lose his life, and he kept on walking. He came to realize that after all the good work that he had done, that deep down in his heart he was selfish by nature and needed to repent not only of his badness but of his goodness. To receive Christ's righteousness, you must repent of your badness. But oh, my dear friends, even more than that, you must repent of your goodness. You must tell God that you're not good enough for heaven. And then he will point you to one who is good enough for you, Jesus Christ, who will give you his righteousness. You must turn by faith. You must come to God and to say to him, I have failed you, but I take Christ as my righteousness. And God will cover you in the righteousness of Christ. He will pronounce a verdict over you today despite all your sins, saying, not guilty. He will work in your life throughout your time here to sanctify you. And then what he has pronounced now, he will pronounce again in the future. But he will do it before the world to see and to hear. Not guilty.
I want you to go home as a Christian rejoicing in this good news that you have been declared righteous by God. And if you are unsaved, not to leave this room, but take Jesus Christ, trust in his death on the cross, and you too will have this great news. No condemnation in Jesus Christ. Amen.